and welcome to The Prediction Ears, a podcast that asks, where's my flying car? And if you do donuts in it, does it turn into a helicopter? I'm James Tapper. And I'm Mark Milton. And I predict that one of these days I'll make a joke that is unexpectedly funny and get a laugh. Um, we're here to talk about predictions. What's going to happen next year, next month, and possibly even next week if we get that far. Uh, as amateur forecasters, neither Mark nor I has any particular skill in seeing what the future holds. I got Modi, Brexit and Trump wrong. Um, but so for each podcast, we speak to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. And this week, we're lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Craig Bennett the new chief executive of the Wildlife Trusts, uh, the UK's largest environmental organisation with 800,000 members, 38,000 volunteers, and um, I think you look after 2,300 nature reserves in the UK. Is that right, Craig? Something like that, yeah. Brilliant. Um, so how's everything going? You, you recently joined the Wildlife Trusts after five years at Friends of the Earth, I think. Well, 18 and a half years at Friends of the Earth in total, but five years as chief exec, yeah. Um, so I'm on day 10 at the Wildlife Trust, and um, it's a bit of a strange time to be starting a new job. Um, you know, I had all these kind of grand ideas that I would do that kind of classic thing, you know, like this, these, all these books about the first 90 days of your of first person in a senior management position. You get out and you meet lots of staff and ask lots of questions. And certainly I was very excited starting at the Wildlife Trust, the opportunity to go around the country see lots of reserves meet lots of the individual local trusts and find out what's happening and of course i'm i'm doing the whole job for my attic here uh, in cambridge um and also while we're having uh you know we were halfway through a kitchen extension as well so i've ended up with all the pots and pans that should be in the kitchen uh, in this room with me as well <laughs> So it's a bit strange. Um, I have discovered that one of the benefits of it is is actually when you meet all your new staff by video conferencing, the great thing is they all appear with their name below their face. So uh, ah. people don't notice if you've forgotten their name for the first few weeks. So that, that, that there's one silver lining in all of it. But other than that, it's a bit strange. Yeah. I mean, it is... Um, it is an extraordinary time to, to, to start. It's... it's uh, The whole of the environmental sector is... Um, is in a bit of a uh, pickle at the moment, given that you haven't got any um, any ability to go out into the environment. Is yeah, it, it is a real problem. Um, it's a real problem for a lot of the <clears throat> environmental charities. I mean, for the start, of course, all the bandwidth in discussing really anything at the moment is taken up with COVID, of course, and completely understandably so. Um, but secondly, you know, um, all charities really depend all the time on constantly recruiting and fundraising uh, for our survival. And particularly for an organisation like the Wildlife Trusts, every spring and summer, you recruit a lot of new members at our reserves in face-to-face -face fundraising and so on. That's critically important for us to be able to get the money in to do what we have to do. Uh, and suddenly that's all taken away from us. So that, that results in a big hit of income. Uh, to uh, us and the same is true of all the all the uh, wildlife organizations uh, and yet of course the work still carries on you know we're still facing a climate and nature emergency we can't press pause and trying to tackle those uh, and and until the public health emergency is over and in fact if we do we're just lurch from one crisis to another so we the work is just as important if not more important than ever and yet actually sadly the sort of income and and some of the ways in which you achieve change are harder than ever so it is a very difficult time and we're all, all having to figure out as we go mm. what are the what's the thinking within the charity sector broadly about how you're going to make up for this income for well i mean there is of course like for all organizations there's the furlough scheme which the government introduced and and that is welcoming it's welcome to be able to sort of 
uh, some quite a lot of staff are having to be furloughed across charities at the moment. But I think there is a difference for charities, say, to business, because actually, I would say we're delivering a public service, and that work still has to continue. And if you look at, say, a lot of uh, wildlife trust nature reserves, they're on the edges of our towns and cities. It's actually local nature. Actually, it's more important to people now than it's ever been so that people can get out when they're doing their daily exercise in a short walk from home to be able to reach this. And it's very important for people's physical and mental well-being to be able to do that. The problem is, is suddenly we don't perhaps have the income to pay the staff to to look after those reserves or to deal with people going on the sites and their health and safety. We're also seeing an increase in things like fly tipping because of a lot of uh, local recycling centres have been shut and people are taking the opportunity to dump it anywhere, which is a real shame. It's a small minority, but it happens. And yet, of course, when staff are being furloughed, uh, they can't undertake the work. So that's a real problem. So we're in conversations with government. We're pushing government really hard at the moment to say, look, at least for charities, why not just give us the same money you'd be giving us to the furlough scheme anyway, but actually allow people to work and deliver that public service, you know, and surely you would have thought anyone that cares about where taxpayers' money is being spent would understand that actually it's better for taxpayers to pay staff in charities to do the job that they would normally do rather than to, to sit at home and it doesn't have to cost the taxpayer any more. So we're making those kind of arguments. Um, but, you know, it's uh, the bandwidth in government at the moment to, to think right across the piece is, is really restricted. Mm. How, how do you see the next six months panning out then? What are we actually, are you, if you don't get that money uh, from the government, if they don't come up with that, what would happen? Well, for a lot of charities, certainly the smaller ones, it will be difficult. And I think very sadly, some charities will fall uh, during this period. Uh, I mean, the, one of the sort of the curious things to bear in mind is that uh, charities aren't supposed to keep big reserves. It's it's good common sense to have some reserves uh, to tie you over, say, three, four months operating expenditure. But it's never good for a charity to have, you know, years and years worth of reserves because then understandably donors and others would say, well, why are they hanging on to it? They should be getting on and, and doing the work that we've given them the money to do. And so in this kind of situation where suddenly you see a lot of income dry up, that's a real problem for a lot of our uh, charities, particularly the smaller ones, the small sort of local ones. And, and, and uh, when it comes to local wildlife charities, a lot of them will be dependent on their income, uh, essentially from people visiting visitor centres and actually cafes by nature reserves and, uh, and those kind of things. So it's a real problem. It can be quite seasonal. So it is a, there is a real danger that parts of the environment sector here will, will fall in the next few months unless we get the kind of support that's needed from government. And the key point here is, is according to the government's own words, we are their principal partners in delivering, say, their uh, long-term environment strategy, their 25-year plan for nature. They said we were their big partners to help them deliver it. And they've they've accepted this privately. I mean, we've had meetings with ministers where they, they agree this. Um, but I mean, there is a, there, I think there needs to be a stronger realisation uh, across politics at the moment that uh, charities, there are some charities that will fall in the months ahead unless that, that real support is there. And a lot of this is also about what kind of country do we want to be in when we get to the other side of this? Uh, I, I mean, actually, the discussion's already begun that surely we don't want to just go to back to exactly where we were before. We, you know, Obviously, we all want to be able to well, I want to go to the pub again and things like that. But um, actually, we are learning some curious things through this process. And I think when it comes to the environment, people are learning that actually maybe we 
we don't need so much traffic on the roads again. Actually, people can spend more time video conferencing. But nice if you didn't have to do it all day, every day. But actually, you don't need to travel to every single meeting. You know, do we really need to be spending 27 billion quid of taxpayers' money on building new road schemes when, in fact, we're all learning that you don't need to travel so much? What about air pollution, the, the premature deaths from air pollution? What can we do about that? Um, and actually, how can people have much better access to nature? Because right now, it's really important for keeping a lot of people's physical and mental well-being. So we need to be thinking now what kind of infrastructure public and third sector charity and private infrastructure do we need to deliver the kind of country you want to live in um, after this appalling pandemic is over? Mm -hmm. well, ordinarily, we try and set up a, a sort of a baseline for for our listeners so that they understand how things uh, are before we move on to predictions. But uh, given that the we're in the middle of this, um, the, the lockdown, uh, is there any point looking at setting out how things have been before it started uh, i mean so we, as you said we were talking so we've been in the middle of a climate emergency we've had uh, a year of sustained pressure from uh, extinction rebellion greta thunberg as well um we all know about the loss of biodiversity deforestation pollution ocean acidification is it worth sort of talking about those things now or do we just not know how it's going to be once the lockdown ends so we will need to sort of reassess things at that point Look, I think it is absolutely essential to to remember where we were just before all this started, because that that is the launching pad from the choices, and it is choices that we make as we come out of this. Take, for example, on climate and emissions. Uh, well, we were very much heading that 2020 was going to be the year of of yet another year of peak emissions in the history of humanity of carbon emissions um and you know much of the debate has been for a long time when we when can we finally get that peak in global emissions uh and then how fast can we come down the other side of it um and that's that's a such a critical task you know let's that, let's make sure that all the countries of the world focus on getting that peak in emissions and then coming down the other side well clearly Global emissions uh, for greenhouse gases um, in 2020 are almost certainly going to be lower than they were now in 2019 because of the pandemic. So we have a choice now. If we're smart about it, we could make sure that it turns out 2019 was the year of peak emissions. What we have to do is put the measures in place to make sure that emissions don't ramp up massively the moment the pandemic finishes. And that is about making choices about, you know, we don't all have to go back to, to, to flying to business meetings um, or driving even to business meetings when actually we're all used to, to using video conferencing now. We can make choices about the kind of infrastructure we build. If you look at our energy system at the moment, it's absolutely fascinating how demand is actually really low. Some people were kind of really worried that lots of people working at home and video conferencing and watching Netflix and spending lots of time on their playstations would uh, increase demand. Of course it doesn't, because because compared to factories and shops and so on, that's really small. So we can make some choices here about actually making sure what kind of world we want to live in as we come out of this uh, pandemic. And uh, we don't have to go back to higher emissions in, say, 2021 than we had in 2019. We could make sure 2019 is the peak year. And I would suggest that would be a very important goal 
For what? For saving people's lives. That's what climate change is about ultimately. Climate change is actually a huge threat to people's health. The Lancet was saying just that the, the medical journal was saying just two, three years ago, actually climate change is one of the biggest threats to people's health. So let's treat it like that and realize what it is. Even from a health emergency point of view, we should be making sure that 2019 was the year of peak emissions. What about on nature? We've seen this huge loss in the abundance of nature over the last few decades, including here in the UK, a collapse of species abundance. Of, of species that were once common. And over the last few weeks of this lockdown, I mean, there's some people have sort of observed maybe nature's coming back and so on. I think most of those reports are overblown. I think most of it is people just spotting it where they've been too busy to spot it in the past. But actually, probably overall, it's been good for nature in some ways. So wouldn't it be nice just to think about how we can learn to live in harmony with nature as we come out of this this lockdown and actually allow a restoration of the abundance of nature in and around our towns and cities so put putting putting nature back that would be a wonderful thing uh, to be able to do and the reason this is important is this isn't this isn't a, a, a random separate thing either this is all completely inextricably connected with how this pandemic started in the first place. I mean, we haven't completely got to the bottom of it yet, but of course the scientific evidence seems to be that actually coronavirus came from uh, species, from bats and pangolins, that because we were fragmenting wildlife habitat in Asia and then uh, the, the wildlife trade as well. Ultimately, whether you look at the details or the big picture, this has emerged because we've lost touch, humanity's lost uh, lost its relationship with nature and we're not living in harmony with nature so for so many reasons let's try and restore that relationship um, as we come out of this Craig that makes a lot of sense um, you speak about choices how will you what will give you confidence that the right choices are being made or even discussed coming out of this well I mean one of them is of course the, the comparison is how we came out of the financial crisis which is different in so many ways but similar in other ways and a lot of the stimulus packages that governments put in place as we came out of the financial crisis had no kind of green criteria on them at all it was a massive wasted opportunity which is why what you saw is global climate missions for example soar the moment the financial crisis was over uh, and actually again taxpayers money was being used to push up carbon emissions essentially by 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 subsidizing polluting industries and again taxpayers money used to subsidize big polluting infrastructure that locked us into higher carbon emissions in the future in some cases destroyed wildlife habitats and so on here yeah. and right around the world so what we need to see is some messages strong messages strong commitments from uh, our global leaders right now to say they're not going to make that mistake this time around let's learn the lessons of the past and let's make sure that uh, measures that government puts in place to quote unquote get the economy moving uh, as the pandemic comes to an end are, are done in a way that gets the right kind of economic activity uh, happening as we come out of it rather than just worrying about percentage points of GDP. You know, we've actually got to make sure that we don't lock ourselves into yet another cycle of yet more crises uh, because we just seem to be seem to lurch from one crisis to another without learning the, the lessons of this. Mm. Um, so there's so many things that I could say to answer your question there. But broadly, it is that we need our political leaders, our business leaders, civil society leaders, religious leaders, say it what you like. And of course, uh, activists to make it very clear. Uh, the choices we need to make are actually now, while we're still in this lockdown, mm -hmm. so that we can influence how we come out of the lockdown. 
and we make the smart choices that don't just lock us into yet another cycle of, of chaos. Mm. Yeah. The decisions they make now will be fateful, and I mm. fear that we're looking very short-term at things at the moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, I know it's only 10 days in, but can you talk us through your ambitions for, for the Wildlife Trust and, and, and what you're, you hoped you might be able to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, it's worth saying, first of all, you know, I, I loved my time at Friends of the Earth. I was there 18 and a half years in total, chief exec for five years. Uh, very proud of what we achieved during that time. You know, uh, essentially a ban on fracking, uh, the legal challenge at Heathrow Airport, getting some of the worst pesticides, killing off bees, banned and so on. Um, and I would have been happy to stay on another year or so um, in that role. I always said I wouldn't do much more than five years as chief exec because I think Friends of the Earth is a restless organisation and I wouldn't want it any other way. That's what it needs to be. And you don't want the same person hanging around for too long at the top, particularly if they've come up through the organisation. Um, but I, I was originally thinking I might hang on till 2021 and see COP26. Remember that when we were doing that mm -hmm, later this year? Wow. That's all gone now. Exactly, yeah. um, but uh, I would have done that. But then uh, the Wildlife Trust job came up last year and they, they sort of came knocking and were talking to me about it. And I just thought this is my dream next step for me. And the reason is, is because I've been really concerned over the last few years how even in the environmental community, uh, people have started trading off climate and nature as if they're, they're different problems. And I've even had clever, sensible people say to me, oh, Craig, climate change is so important. We've got to focus on that. And then we'll deal with the, what, what's happening to nature after that. Or then, then then the report would come out about biodiversity loss and they'd say, oh, we've got to focus on that and let other people worry about climate change. This is nonsense. You cannot solve the, the climate crisis without addressing the crisis in nature and you cannot address the crisis of nature without solving the climate crisis they're inextricably linked and so i'm absolutely determined that in my time with the wildlife trust what i hope to be able to do with the wildlife trust is make it really clear that these are linked and with a you know a, a uk-based local wildlife movement absolutely demonstrate that we have to put nature into recovery if that's going to be good for people's health and well-being good for the economy and the right kind of economic activity and critical for tackling the climate emergency and if we can do that here in the UK in a way that because the wildlife trust is very local and it's all about local nature then that I think will lead to a big zeitgeist shift that will be uh, really profound and actually lay us up for the, the making the right choices in the 21st century and I what I love about the Wildlife Trust is it has that ability to be kind of quite gutsy, it has the ability to have, uh, because it's locally based, community based and so on, it has that that uh, radical nature right in the grassroots, which I think is so important. In that sense, it's not so different from Friends of the Earth, is that we're mm. the grassroots organisations, you know, I think are so important to delivering the real solutions to these crises. Because I've long said there's no solutions to big environmental problems that are done to people. The only ones that last and endure are those that are done by people. Mm -hmm. Very briefly, would you would you be able to say, give some of the more famous examples of wildlife trusts uh, locations that, that people may have may be aware of or not, not realize that they're related to the wildlife trusts, for example. I think there's um, yeah, puffins in South Wales, there's, <laughs> Yeah, so famously, there's Scobo Island, for example, yeah. uh, off yeah. the coast of, of Wales, absolutely amazing place. And, and you're right, right now, this time of year, fantastic for uh, puffins. Um, 
you might think of would-be wetlands in uh, North London, for example, uh, or again, if you actually very close to where the Guardian Observer is, there's Camley Street <laughs> Nature Reserve uh, near, near your headquarters as well. That's run by London Wildlife Trust. And that's, you know, a brilliant examples of urban wildlife, uh, really important. And then you see large areas of coast, say up in Lincolnshire, some of the famous sort of uh, wetlands and coastal dunes uh, that the, uh, they have out there. Norfolk Wildlife Trust, some beautiful dune, um, sand dune kind of ecosystems there. Um, I mean, the, the thing is about the Wildlife Trust is it's very often it's about that local nature. It's close to where people live and a walk away. And the organizations like the National Trust might say have you big kind of spectacular ones that people might travel a long distance to go and see. Wildlife Trust is much more about the ones that are in your locality and that's why I think Wildlife Trust is brilliantly placed to be at the forefront of creating a nature recovery network. So actually we're connecting up all the little bits of nature right across the country, connecting them up with wildlife corridors and so on that actually give an opportunity to bring our nature back. Uh, and that's what I feel really passionate about. Hmm. So, so what would somebody who maybe uh, enjoys going to to one of those nature reserves um, see that may change, say, over the next two or three or five years or so? Uh, well, um, hopefully, if we get if we win the kind of policy changes we need to bring our nature back, uh, to put nature into recovery. What hopefully you'll see is us being able to grow out from those nature reserves. At the moment, those nature reserves are kind of the last refugees. And there's this kind of, they are an example of nature conservation, if you like. In other words, where we absolutely sort of protected the very last postage stamps of our natural habitats or the last places where particular species and habitats were found. And they've been very carefully protected over time. The big vision is that we go from nature conservation to putting nature into recovery and nature restoration. So what you actually see with some uh, uh, some nature reserves close to where I live in Cambridgeshire, run by the local wildlife trust here, is they've managed to acquire the land next to them uh, over recent time. And it's not it's not land that is of high conservation value in the traditional sense. It might be kind of quite normal in inverted commas land at the moment old agricultural land or something but the concept is is then you can grow out from those um, postage stamps that we've managed to protect over the last hundred or so years and then be able to expand the idea is that over time wildlife trust nature reserves and uh, bits of wildlife wildlife nature reserves from other organizations and local authorities and so on the idea these both become uh, larger but also they become connected through wildlife corridors and may be connected along motor, motorway verges or ray, uh, railway corridors or river corridors and so on to create that true nature recovery network. With our vision being that around 30% of the UK land and sea is managed primarily for wildlife to allow nature to come back into proper abundance. And the science is really clear. That's roughly what's needed to actually put nature into recovery in this country. And wouldn't it be exciting if the UK is the, is the country where the Industrial Revolution started, if we're at the forefront of actually trying to turn the tide on the decline of nature and actually be able to show how we, even in a country with 60, or perhaps especially in a country with 60, 65 million people, we can put nature into recovery. It would be fantastic. How are we doing? If 30% is the target, where are we currently? 
Well, around uh, 15% roughly of our land is designated in some way for nature at the moment um, as sites of special scientific interest or local nature reserves or whatever. That doesn't mean it's necessarily being managed in, to a good state. Some of that is a very poor condition for nature. So we're not really even up 15%. So, but roughly it will be a doubling of um, the land uh, available for nature. And it doesn't mean this isn't about putting a big boundary around it, not at all. This isn't saying that it can only ever be used for that. As I say, you know, actually it could be that some of this would be motor, uh, roadside verges if, if managed the right way and allowed to become brilliant wildlife habitat or mm. um, along river corridors or whatever. It's much more about it being integrated. So it's an entirely achievable that this could be done. Um, but, you know, we think that needs to be done by 2030 as well. Let's put a date on it to put nature into recovery. And uh, it would make all our lives better. I mean, the other thing that's worth thinking about in this at the moment is you could you'd be able to measure the improvement that makes for people's physical and mental well-being it would be there's been some estimates but you know i think more would need to be done you could probably measure how much this would save the nhs uh, in terms of cost if you could actually Im improve people's quality of life by doing this so that's the kind of vision we need here um, if we're to learn anything from the last few months let alone the last few decades Mm. What's, what's standing in the way of um, uh, of that happening now? Is it simply a matter of acquiring land? I mean, the, the motorway verges, I would have thought, is you're clearly not going going to to buy those them to expand things. So, so what what needs to happen for that to 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 turn into reality? Yeah, well, of course, it'd be great for some nature organisations like the Wildlife Trust and others. We we would look to acquire some land in some places. But you're absolutely right. As much as anything, this is working in partnership with other landowners, not least, you know, absolutely top of the pile there, farmers as well, uh, which so that means about changes to agricultural policy. And we and other organisations have been working really hard over the last two, three years to try and shape the new agricultural policy that will be coming in over the next two, three years. You might have heard this phrase, public money for public goods. So where actually we see public subsidies uh, for farming, that should be to, to make sure it's delivered on public goods like uh, nature recovery and uh, soil recovery and so on. Um, but also, yes, it's working with other landowners, local authorities, uh, National Rail, yeah, Highways England and others to actually have this common goal of putting nature into recovery. The extraordinary thing is in some cases it will be cheaper than what we're spending now. I mean, it's amazing how a lot of local authorities, certainly 10 years ago, the kind of where the public what public were at and local authorities were at is that if they left a bit of a local park to go a bit wild, people thought it was untidy. I'm delighted that I think a lot of people campaigning on these issues, not least at Friends of Earth and our campaign on bees over the last decade, now get people to kind of to realise that actually leaving a bit of areas of, of uh, urban greenery to go wild is absolutely essential for uh, bringing nature back. And so now when people see a wild area in a local park, they celebrate it rather than think it's a local authority uh, run out of money or whatever. And actually we can do the same with roadside verges and so on. Local authority down in, um, I think it's uh, Dorset, has saved uh, hundreds of thousands over the last few years by uh, allowing its roadside verges to go into wildflower meadows. So this can be done. A lot of it is a, about a cultural and zeitgeist shift, people saying they want it, people celebrating it when it happens. And that's why I think the more we can do it, it will it will be like a snowball rolling. People will want it more and more. And, uh, you know, we can go, I'd like to imagine we can go well beyond the 30% once we've achieved that. Mm, do you think that people's um, 
deep appreciation of nature currently when when they have limited exposure to it might serve to some degree as a catalyst for this sort of public swell of um or, or a shift in the zeitgeist as you put it um uh, so yes and no so the interesting point about that is is i think i think unquestionably it's really true that the more that you know something about about something the more likely you are to care about it so that much is clear and i think if we can really try and improve people's understanding of nature uh that will be very important uh and, and then people are more likely to care about it and appreciate it and so on i do think one of the problems uh, perhaps of the sort of nature conservation movement in britain historically uh certainly over the last sort of hundred or so years is a lot of it has has evolved from that sort of tradition of the victorian naturalist which is all about their you know, collecting 100 species of beetle and putting them in a drawer and labeling them with Latin names and so on. And um, <clears throat> there will always be a good section of our nature community that absolutely loves that sort of fastidious approach and wants to label everything and know the Latin names and so on. I recognize that can actually be quite off-putting sometimes to, to some of the people and intimidating actually to some of the people that want to get involved. And one of the things I want to do again with my time at the Wildlife Trust is make it clear that, you know, you don't have to know the Latin names of uh, all the bird species and beetles to celebrate and get excited about late nature. You know, mm. I'm, I'll admit it. I'm actually not brilliant at that side of things either. I, When I look at nature, I get much more kind of excited about the interactions between species. I get excited about the ecology and the ecosystem and how that works as a whole, rather than necessarily just individual uh, uh, species and so on, uh, and I think that there is a there is something we need to do in the in the wider nature movement is to make ourselves much more inclusive to people who aren't involved at the moment. That means about diversifying outside out, outside of what is often a very actually white middle class movement at the moment, and and making it much more inclusive for people from a whole range of backgrounds, ethnicities, and part of that is making it kind of less of a sense you got to know the Latin name of everything before you can get involved. Hmm. England is a very cultivated country, isn't it? We, when we look at other places, perhaps places with more space like Canada and Australia, uh, or even New Zealand, um, they are, they certainly don't have the same sort of manicured feel that a lot of, um, certainly England does, not so much Scotland and Wales. Is that, is that something that, is that a feel that we can return to, do you think? Is that, is that part yeah. of what you'd like to happen? Absolutely. So, you know, I've been asked before now, you know, what's my favourite you know, animal species, bird species, habitat, whatever, favourite thing in nature. And actually, sometimes the thing I get most excited about is is when you see the natural uh, gradation from one habitat to another. So I get excited when you're climbing mountains and you get to a natural tree line and actually you get to the end of a forest for purely natural reasons and it fades out and you see the trees get smaller and smaller before you know it you've got a tree that's only a foot high but it's 100 years old and it's taken 100 years to grow where normally it would grow to you know much much higher in that time um but we don't actually have that in this country i mean very rarely in the uk do you see a, a natural transitions from one habitat to another nearly always it happens with a fence or a dry stone wall uh, and different management uh, you see it when you go to other countries like, like you know, Canada and the US and New Zealand and, and those sort of places. You see it where you still got landscape scale nature. And I would love us 
to have landscape scale nature uh, and, and landscapes in this country again and it's totally achievable um, while still growing good healthy food in this country while still having an absolute fair return for farmers all those things uh, we can do it we absolutely can do it but we've got to have that vision and we've got to realize what's missing at the moment and realize that so much of what we consider natural in the UK at the moment isn't you know I mean the, the Lake District looks like it is because of a choice that's not how nature intended it to look like that. Uh, it is managed that way. Now, you can think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but the one thing we should recognize is it's, as it is at the moment, it's not not natural. That's not how nature intended. And that's true of most of our landscapes that we think are, are, are you know, your, your wonderful green nature in this country, your green and pleasant land. Most of it is, is nearly all cultural and rather than as nature intended. Let's have a big debate about how much this country should be genuinely governed and, and uh, run by nature um some people would say it should be you know a huge percentage other people would say it should be small i think there's very few people would say it should be zero or one percent that's pretty much where we are now where I'm, I'm struggling for sort of context um it, i mean it sounds dreadful and, and everything you described in terms of our landscape i appreciate and and and, and um, recognize who does this well who are the exemplars who could we follow or, or is there something we need to pioneer? I think in many respects we do need to pioneer it because the way we would do it in, in a country like the UK would be different from how it has been done. I mean, we, there are some examples, some small examples in this country where you've seen a, you know, a handful of new housing estates being built with uh, you know, actually quite a quite good investment in uh, nature and biodiversity within them in advance. But those are by far and away the rarity rather than the norm. Um, we have got some brilliant farms in this country, some brilliant model farms, including some owned and run by local wildlife trusts that show how you can farm in a way that also helps put nature into recovery. So the kind of models are there. Um, uh, so we know how to kind of do this. Um, but I think actually there will be a lot of it will be learning by doing. I mean, coming back to the point about housing states, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? That, uh, um, at the moment, we would kind of think of housing, building new housing estates as being bad for nature. But actually, a lot of our agricultural land at the moment uh, is essentially a green desert. And you could, uh, we know we need new housing uh, in this country, and you can build, whether it's <clears throat> housing estates or whether it's actually in, in brownfield land uh, within our cities. You absolutely can do that in a way that results in a big boost for, for nature and actually again good for people's mental and physical well-being that then live in those houses good for flood alleviation and prevention as well um, if we do that so there's lots of ways in which this can happen um, and we need to innovate as we go so I, th I think we shouldn't be looking necessarily to cut and paste models from elsewhere I think let's develop a really new exciting vision about how we can do this makes a lot of sense um how can people contribute now? Well, can they can join the Wildlife Trust, obviously, <laughs> and uh, join the local Wildlife Trust. Good time, good time to do that. Um, but also, people can get involved at you know the local level. Of course, people contribute by um, if they own a garden, if they have a garden, uh, actually making sure that a good chunk of it is left to go wild. That's really important. One of the best things you can do is put in a pond, even if it's a very small one. I mean, with um, our garden we've managed to put a, create a pond out of what was my great grandfather's tin bath which somehow was hanging around in the family <laughs> still we've put that in there 
dug a dug a hole for that, filled it up, put a pond in it, put a little ramp so that hedgehogs can go in and out and don't drown on it. Um, and we love it. And it's it's Brilliant. just become this haven for wildlife in this little corner of our garden. And uh, left to go wild around it. it. <laughs> well, we had a, a my dad a had a family business for years. Had a my dad had a garage as the family business for years, and um, it was it was we found it there as he cleared it out to a tire about four or five years ago. So we thought, well, we're having that. That's too nice. Uh, and um, and then we turned it into a pond. And um, That's a fantastic idea. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of things you can do like that. Um, and again, even if you if you're living in a city, yeah. just even with your window boxes, you can plant plants for pollinators. And the the funny thing is, it's a bit like we were talking about. If people appreciate that, once people get involved, even if it's just putting pollinator friendly plants in a window box, actually, then they start to celebrate the bees returning and seeing them and one thing leads to another once people in my experience once people start this journey uh, they just go further and further with it well i'm inspired i've got some free time i'm a decent gardener <laughs> it's a good time to Excellent. do it it really is well one of the uh, one of the eye-catching things that that uh, appeared alongside um your um news of uh of you becoming the new um, chief executive at the wildlife trust was um was the reintroduction of, of species that have been long missing from from the UK? I know beavers was something that the Wildlife Trust has already already worked on, and now you think perhaps, perhaps well, what are, tell us what other species might uh, might work in the English countryside? Yeah, so you noticed this one then, James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, funny enough, it did get a bit of attention. Um, no, well, I was asked, uh, I, I said one of the reasons I was so thrilled to be joining the Wildlife Trust is I think uh, we have played a real lead in reintroducing species that have been missing, and particularly beavers. You know, Wildlife Trust have been at the forefront of reintroducing uh, beavers, which only just a few years ago we didn't have in this country at all, which is extraordinary, and, and let's hope we can uh, see them where right across the country where they used to be. Um, and I believe that we should be looking to reintroduce all the species that were once here naturally but have been lost. Um, and I was asked, are there any species I wouldn't reintroduce? Uh, and I said, no. And they said, well, even wolves and bears? And I said, yeah, one day. Um, because I think when uh, we should absolutely have that aim. Now, let's be really clear. You've got to have the habitat in place to do it. You've got to have community support and support from landowners and particularly farmers to do it. So say in the case of bears, I think that's a really quite a long way off because arguably we don't even have the habitat for it at the moment even up in the caledonian forest and so on um but actually um you know there are crowded parts of north america that have bare populations and uh, you know it works quite happily if people know what they're doing and so on and we should have a vision of putting nature into recovery and allowing that to happen quite safely and how exciting would that be and the interesting thing was is on social media which i know is not exactly you know your scientifically representative uh, tool for this Although I got a couple of people sort of saying, you crazy nutter for sort of suggesting this. Actually, the vast majority of people are saying this would be absolutely spectacular. This would be wonderful if the thought that, you know, we could reintroduce species like that that, that have been lost. And people got very, very excited about it. Uh, the overall point is, uh, what I would say is where in, you know, if you care about the uk if you care about you know uk culture and uk ecosystems we should recognize that when we've got species and habitats that should be here if they're missing you know there's a big part of our our 
uh, culture that's missing. Uh, the comparison I made before is, you know, not having bears here is the equivalent of uh, us never having had Shakespeare or whatever. That's what it's equivalent to. And uh, there's a big part of our British culture missing if British species and habitats are missing. We've got to do it right as and when it happens. And it's not mm. on my priority for, I, I doubt it will happen in my time on the Wildlife Trust, unfortunately, even though I plan quite a good long innings. And it's certainly not in my first hundred days. But um, <laughs> yeah, would I like it to happen one day? Yes, I would. Yeah, well, I, I think I think wolves are, um, are quite a long way down the line. There's a, there's a guy in I can't remember if it's the north of England or or somewhere in Scotland who does have quite uh, sincere plans. I think to reintroduce wolves in into a particular area. I can't remember the name. Or yeah, the, that will happen a lot but, sooner. I'm sure that will. Mm. And and the thing to understand here, you know, a lot of our ecosystems at the moment are out of whack. That you know, and wolves is a classic example. I mean, there's a big problem with uh, deer populations in parts of the country and then you have to have you know there's there, you end up with culling to deal with that and so on well that's not a good solution you know let's let's try and make put nature into recovery so that we have large areas that have fully functioning ecosystems and nature can look after itself it did it very well before we came along so <laughs> let us let us uh, try and get to the situation where that happens again can i just ask fascinated uh, well, I'm just fascinated by the other Shakespeare's we've lost. What What are the animals that I, I've forgotten that we don't have in the country anymore? Bears, wolves, beavers. What else? I mean, wild boars, I guess. <clears throat> boars. And, you know, uh, I think those already you get some, there's wild boars in the new forest and places like that now. Um, and I think those will spread. I think one of the, uh, there's a whole load of uh, bird species. So we've seen reintroductions of bird species over the last few years. Some of them being really successful. Uh, storks being reintroduced now, which is very exciting. Uh, uh, sea eagles as well, uh, which is which is fantastic. Uh, I, I think the next one to sort of keep an eye on is uh, the lynx. You know, there's some plans to reintroduce lynx. Again, I want to really stress this. This has to be done well. When when species reintroductions are done badly, if you don't have the support of local communities, support of local farmers, and so on actually can lead to a backlash which means that actually it's not successful long term so it has to be done really well and um really carefully thought through um but from my point of view from a thought experiment from a point in principle if you can make it work if you've got the communities on the side the farmers on the side why wouldn't you it's a it's a spectacular part of our history and culture um and it's just not here at the moment so let's mm. let's bring it back if we can and the thing is is half the time we don't know what the impact of these are the, the real so talking about bears what's the real ecosystem function one of the most important ecosystem functions of bears either of you any idea <laughs> no idea at all what what a bear does apart from things in the woods well that's a big part yeah. of it actually so it's actually seed dispersal so so say if you if you put, put parts of the balkans and so on a lot of people would never think this but the unique thing uh, about bears is they will say if you if you go to the mediterranean or something where bears once would have been found uh, bears uniquely would have eaten a, a lot of plums off plum trees and they would have gorged themselves on them in, through the night uh, and then gone off you know perhaps 60 kilometers away and do what bears do in the woods and a few years later you get a load of plum trees now the interesting point is is there's very few other species that would eat a whole plum including the stone and then walk off 60 kilometers and do their thing um and you know there's other species might nibble bits around it and so on we don't know in this country we don't know how uh, our natural habitats would be we don't know how our ecology in this country would be different if actually you had 
um, uh, some of these species back. I say it's a very long time off, decades off in some mm. cases, but we don't know what we're missing in some cases mm. uh, uh, and all the interactions between it. And we're mm. discovering now with the introduction of beavers that sometimes they're having, you know, a real uh, very positive impact on our river ecology in ways that we wouldn't have predicted. Can you just explain what some of those things are? I mean, uh, to people who haven't well, read, the, read about this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the exciting thing that we're seeing down in uh, the southwest with the reintroduction of uh, beavers is, of course, they build their dams. They slow the water. This is all good, by the way, for flood prevention because it mm -hmm. slows the water in the in the smaller streams and and rivers, which stops huge amounts of water in the uh, downstream where the towns and cities are. Um, and obviously, that's then creating habitats for fish and for other uh, uh, river life. Then you're seeing those sometimes flood out, creating a change of habitats. Um, and so, uh, what you're seeing, I mean, sometimes beavers are described as ecosystem engineers. And what you're seeing is sometimes a change in, you know, habitats as a result of beavers coming in. And yet they should be there. You know, they should. It's absolutely right. They're there. So we're seeing these kind of changes. It's it's really exciting. And and yet it's still early days. You know, they've only been reintroduced over the last few years. What will it be like in 20, 30 years time when they've been around for uh, you know, a, a lot longer. So it's kind of very exciting to monitor this and, and monitor these changes and actually just start seeing nature released back into the wild again. You know, mm -hmm. nature should be free. Um, and uh, that's what we've achieved as the Wildlife Trust where we've introduced beavers. And actually mm -hmm. what we'd love to do is kind of connect up our nature reserves, put nature into recovery, 30% of land and see for, for uh, nature uh, restored again. Mm -hmm. And it make a huge difference. And we haven't even talked about the marine environment, James. I mean, you know, this no, is no, Britain. Br Britain, Britain has an amazing story to tell about the marine environment. But you know, Britain, that's Britain. Wales holds the world record for the le largest leatherback turtle ever found washed up at three meters long in uh, the early 1990s, I think, in Harlech. Would you believe leatherback turtle? Um, you know, we get uh, we got cold water corals here. We get. Um, Back in uh, 200, 300 years ago, cod would grow in the North Sea up to three meters long. Uh, you can't even imagine that now. Three meters long. You know, I, wa I want to see our marine environment as healthy as it was 200 years ago. Yeah. And uh, think how exciting that would be. Oh, and by the way, to come full circle, that's a heck of a lot of carbon being sucked out the air as well mm. and going from the atmosphere mm -hmm. into the biosphere, which is just mm. what we need. Yeah. It's really interesting that... Um, Thinking about predictions about the future, one often returns to the past, and we've obviously talked a bit about that. The uh, one of the fascinating things that um, hadn't really occurred to me until I was reading some history about the natural world was was how much our attitudes have changed um, from the way people thought about things in Shakespeare's time. So at that at that point, nature was seen as something to be subdued and to be uh, dominated by by man and, and that was civilization was all about kind of the 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 subjugation of nature whereas that as you as you pointed out you know the victorians then changed um you know the, as towns um as towns grew in size and as nature became slightly uh less um as it became controlled by people the 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 value of it uh, emerged, and and that's why the the conservationists and the naturalists of the Victorian area, of Victorian area era era uh, emerged. So, how do we think 
attitude. So that, it seems utterly bizarre, though, that that people would have that attitude now. I mean, no, nobody would even consider the idea that that it's our role to go out and, and build more roads and and create more more farmland. So, if that's how, given that that we think that their attitudes were utterly bizarre, how will people in two hundred years think about? our current attitudes, given that we do value nature and, and that we think that creating um, tr nature reserves is, is an excellent thing to do. Is, is, there, is that something that will go further or will the pendulum swing back somehow? You know, if we rewild, will at some point in the future people say, well, actually, we need to start cultivating again? What do you think? Look, I, I, I am an optimist. You, you have to be to kind of do this job, to be a kind of environmental campaigner you have to have to believe change is possible and you have to believe that you know we can improve things and and yes we might feel we have a kind of decent relationship with nature now but you know in victorian times they might have thought they cared about children but they still shoved them up chimneys you know and i i i think actually i think in years to come i think future generations will be absolutely shocked at the way we uh, treat nature now as a dumping ground and uh, just absolutely mining it all the time for <clears throat> uh, fiber, for materials, for food, and so on. Um, I mean, I love the question, James, because it's something I've long been very interested in about, is what is the long-term arc of humanity and actually the long-term arc of progress? And I believe passionately that what I and tens of thousands of other activists and campaigners are engaged in is a campaign for the next step of human progress which is to learn fairly how to learn fairly within environmental limits uh, on one planet as if we mean to stay and actually live to learn in harmony with nature you know you could argue in billions of years from now if you like or when you look up in the equivalent of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or anything like that, if you're traveling through space or something like that, yeah. wouldn't it be nice if the story of humans was that, okay, for the first few, you know, hundred years of their existence, they screwed the planet a bit, but then they realized that wasn't good for them in the long term. And actually the next step of human pro progress was to learn to live fairly within environmental limits and learn to live in harmony with nature again. And I ask you this, if learning to do that, if living in harmony with nature is not the next step of human progress, what is it? Because the scientists are pretty clear, we might not have another step of human progress if we don't. So I really that the big battle this century, the big question for humanity this century is, are we going to be able to do that? Are we going to be able to move on from an old sort of industrial model of how humans relate to nature and see themselves as completely separate of it? And actually, do we start to realize that we are part of nature and we've got to live in harmony with nature and i think that is the that's ultimately one of the big huge questions that humanity has to ask itself and answer in the 21st century i'm confident with a some good campaigning some good practice on the ground and some good activism we'll come out and work out the next step of progress is is doing exactly that learning to live within harmony of nature if not we haven't got one mm. fingers crossed um, I think it's a good time to ask um, the question that we always ask our guests, which is uh, to pick a sporting event or a cultural event and uh, pick a political event and um, give us your predictions on them. It doesn't matter what they are. Goodness. <laughs> 
I think there's a good chance. There's still a good chance Donald Trump will win the election this year. Do you think? But do you think it will happen? Well, that's the interesting possibility. He might kick off. But I, I, I did actually. I had. Uh, it's probably no secret that <clears throat> uh, I was a bit of a Remainer. But actually, in uh, the weeks running up to the referendum in 2016, I really was feeling that it was going to go the other way. And in the months leading up to Trump, uh, in uh, when he was he was elected first time, I felt that as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if Trump gets a second term. Um, mm. uh, and goodness knows what happens then. But I think it will just become ever more chaotic. And um, you know, it's, you kind of look at some of the stuff that's going on now in the U.S. around around that. It, it feels to me like he's losing power. He might he might be in office, but actually his ability to actually do anything seems to reduce all the time. I, originally, I, my prediction was that he would get a second term, he'd be impeached in the second term, but I think kind of the Democrats moved too early mm. on that. They might they might have succeeded yeah. if they'd, they'd left it a bit later, but we'll, we'll see. Mm. Um, I I don't know. You ask, ask me. I, can't, I, it's, <laughs> I mean, the one thing, well, one thing I've said to colleagues a lot over the last two years is actually... What we shouldn't do, what you can't do anymore is make predictions. What you can do is look at uh, a whole range of plausible scenarios. And yes. actually, they might be the most bonkers plausible scenario you can imagine, but one of them will end up happening or something in between the t in between them. So that's worth considering. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what, why, why don't you give us a bonkers optimistic scenario of how we emerge from this current crisis in a, okay. in a way that aligns us <clears throat> for a sustainable future? Okay, well, I do think, I said I'm a bit of an optimist. I do think, actually, uh, once we come, the reason it's so important for us to hit peak emissions globally, and that's what I was talking about before, is I've long felt that once we start the other side of that peak, uh, we'll come down far faster than people think, because actually there's kind of all this, um, <clears throat> the, all the kind of system theory and how, how things flow in that. Reinforcing I mean, you look at feedback it, and stuff. Reinforcing feedback and things like that. It's really, it's interesting how for years, uh, environmental campaigners often thought high oil prices were good because it drove energy efficiency and so on. I've not thought that for a long time. I've thought, actually thought lower oil prices are really good at the moment because they make it uh, less and less competitive for oil companies to explore sort of uh, unconventional fuels like fracking and or the Antarctic or whatever, or the Arctic. And... Uh, you know, oil prices are really low at the moment. And I think that's yeah. really good for the environment. Curiously, North American because, crude production will go through the floor with yeah, the prices and, like this. And I think the great thing is, is renewables are getting cheaper all the time. Um, and, um, you know, actually what you're seeing right now is a, a, a huge oversupply of electricity in Western Europe, for example, from renewables. Again, pricing a lot of oil and gas out of, off the grid in, in many respects. Uh, so I think we might end up with a bit of luck. We might end up seeing the demise of fossil fuels far quicker than anyone ever dared to hope. And actually, you look at renewables, the uptake of renewables and the fall in the cost of renewables over the last 20 years has happened far faster than you know I dared to hope. So I think you, you get these positive feedback loops in the system. You know, that's all encouraging. And, and then you get things like this, you know, it takes some shocks to the system, like this dreadful pandemic, but suddenly actually people do feel comfortable doing video conferencing. You know, we've, I mean, we've had it for years. It's not like it's only just been invented, but mm. we've suddenly been shocked into doing it. 
Um, what we have to do is have the kind of have culture and infrastructure catch up now. I mean, what will what, one of the things we have to push for really hard after this is how mad it is that season tickets for commuters, you know, your choice you have is either you have a season ticket that assumes you're commuting five days a week or or it's really ridiculous. I mean, there's, it's almost impossible to have a kind of season ticket at the moment that is like for part time commuting. That's madness in the in the kind of world we have now, where so many people now, that's exactly what you do. You might go to an office two, three days a week, and you might work from home two, two three days a week. So how is it our, our ticketing for our rail travel hasn't caught up yet, for example? Um, so there's a whole load of things like that. And when that kicks in, it becomes mutually reinforcing. It's the things like um, in London, for example, the change you've seen on cycling over the last 10, 15 years has been huge because you put in better cycling infrastructure, more people cycle, that leads to more cycling infrastructure or political support for that. And I think, you know, over the next decade or so, if we're smart about how we campaign and we have a bit of luck, actually, a lot of the things we're talking about could move a lot faster than we uh, perhaps worry about sometimes. Fingers crossed. You never know. Mm. It has to as well. Otherwise, we're really screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's let's hope you're right. Um, well, I think it's been an absolute pleasure, Craig. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, let's hope that some of your predictions come true. You never know. Thanks, guys. Good to talk. Thanks for listening to the Predictioners podcast. If you like what you heard, then please subscribe. And if you really liked us, then leave a review too.